was, that was grace. That was blood and violence and, and loyalty. That was good. And, but when you mix together a pagan love for hero worship and for legends, together with a Christian biblical love for testimony, then from that mix you get something called hagiography. Hagiography, the invention of saints, Christian superheroes whose stories are used to teach and inspire. George of Lydda was a Christian who died during one of the last great Roman persecutions of Christians in the very early years of the 4th century AD, the early 300s, probably the year 303 AD. We know that he was a soldier, high-ranking, and of aristocratic birth, and he was sentenced to death for refusing to recant his Christian faith. As a Roman soldier, he was afforded the dignity of decapitation by sword, um, the same execution uh, that uh, the Apostle Paul had, because Paul also was a Roman citizen. Beyond that, we know nothing about him. But 200 years later, the stories about him now included that he'd been tortured on 20 separate occasions over seven years, and that when he died, 40,900 pagans were converted to Christianity, including the Empress Alexandra. When he finally died, the wicked Darcian, his persecutor, was carried away in a whirlwind of fire. Another five centuries later, we have George, now Saint George, the well-known dragon slayer. Here's his story. Near a village in Libya, there was a lake, and in the lake there lived a serpent, or a dragon, who spewed out poison poisoning the country. To prevent it from attacking the village itself, the villagers offered it two sheep every day, and then a man and a sheep, and then finally their children and youths, chosen by lot. One day, the lot fell to the king's daughter. The beautiful princess was sent out to the lake, dressed as a bride to be fed to the dragon. By chance, St. George arrives on horseback with his lance, and he has a conversation with the princess who begs him to flee for his life, but he doesn't. When the dragon emerges from the pond, St. George made the sign of the cross and charged it, wounding it with his lance. Borrowing the girl's undergarments, George used them to bind the dragon, which then consented to be led meekly by the girl herself into the village. Now in the village, the, the villagers were terrified by the sight of the serpent. But George promised to kill it if they became Christians and were baptized. They agreed, and 15,000 were baptized, including the king. Then George killed the dragon, beheading it with his sword. When a church was built on the site of the slaying, a spring flowed from its altar and the water that flowed cured all diseases. That would make a really good film, wouldn't it? <laughs> I suggest Scarlett Johansson for the role of princess, and I don't know, uh, Jude Law for George? We're going to think about that. But perhaps we might take a moment to consider that our cathedral 
is St. George's Cathedral, and that St. George is the patron saint of England. And, of course, our church is named after a saint, St. Barnabas. This is hagiography, the veneration of particular Christians as so-called saints. Hagiography, as a continuing tradition, as a continuing thing in Christendom, it confuses several things simultaneously, and it's worth understanding what it confuses. It confuses truth and fiction, because it cannot tell the difference between history and legend. It confuses magic with miracle. The Bible opposes those two things, radically different. The miraculous, in all important respects, is the opposite of the magical. But the paganized Christianity that resulted from the mass conversion of barbarian tribes couldn't tell the difference, and delights in both, as though they were the same thing. In the Bible, magic is any conjuring or deceptive power, supernatural or natural, that works to bring people under the control of the magician. Pharaoh employed magicians to keep his subjects subject. In the Bible, a miracle is the manifest power of God through means, perhaps, or by way of coincidence, or perhaps without means, or perhaps without any explanation. But it's the manifest power of God at work such that the character and nature of God are revealed and his saving purposes through Jesus Christ, his Son, in whom is God fully revealed. Magic points people to the magician. Miracles reveal God and point people to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Moses, uh, by the way, accidentally moved from miracle worker to magician when he used power that God had given him, but used it to his own political agenda uh, in the face of his congregation. That's one of the things that's uh, going on in that numbers reading. But now, because in Christendom, magic and miracles are essentially the same thing, and legend and history are essentially the same thing, then uh, as the world began to exit the Christendom era in the 19th and 20th centuries, began to move from pre-modern thinking to modern thinking, then it found also that in Christendom, faith and superstition had become the same thing. Actually, they're radically different things. Faith is a believing response to something that you've heard and that liberates. Superstition is a binding fear that takes you captive and makes your behavior conform to something. Totally, totally different things. But um, faith is the finished work of Christ. Faith is a response to that. Culturally speaking, in Christendom, it's, 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 it's indistinguishable from superstition. And in, in those centuries, 19th and 20th, both Christians and non-Christians, they became embarrassed by the miracles in the Bible because it looked like we were asking modern thinkers to believe in magic. And of course, modern thinkers know that magic is not true. 
and asking people to believe the Bible, well, that actually felt like asking people to believe in legends. And in fact, you'll still hear non-Christians talk about the Bible as myth and legend. And this is because they are just as confused about what myth and legend are as they are about what the Bible is. I mean, for example, I mean, this is outrageous, but I've heard Don Bradman described as a legend. Deeply insulting. Don Bradman was a real person. And his astonishing ability as a batsman is beyond all reasonable historical doubt. Don Bradman is not a cricketing legend. He's a real person. And his abilities weren't mythical. But I guess my point is this. The paganization of Christianity, as the gospel moved out of the Roman Empire and into Europe, led to the mashing of biblical ideas with pagan values, and thus the intellectual inability of believers and non-believers alike to distinguish these things, legend from history, magic from miracles, superstition from faith. And hagiography makes another classic error, which we've already addressed in this series of sermons, uh, that sermon was on the rise of monasticism, the error of believing that for us as Christians, there are two ways to live. The normal Christian and the super-spiro Christian. And that heresy arises in every Christian culture in one way or another. The martyr versus the non-martyr. The churchgoer versus the hermit. The monk versus the non-monk, the laity versus the clergy, the missionaries versus the non-missionaries, whatever you like. It's a temptation. It's pagan nonsense. What counts is a new creation. Faithfulness to Christ where you are. But non-Protestant Christianity, Catholic and Orthodox, continues to recognize saints. Heroically spiritual Christians worthy of celebration and emulation, inspiring and encouraging, and who, above all, are connected with the miraculous. But indeed, what that means in context usually is with the, with the, with the magical. Their dead bodies, for example, are called holy relics, and they do miracles too. Um, here's a story I've read. Uh, two, pag- sorry, two beggars were in town and they get caught up in a religious procession, a procession that is carrying the relics of St. Martin. One beggar is crippled, the other beggar is blind. Fearing for their livelihoods, that is, their ability to pull income from begging, they try to flee. The seeing one who cannot walk gets on the back of the blind one who cannot see but can walk, and they try their darndest to make their getaway. But disaster! They can't get away from St. Martin's dead body fast enough, and they're healed. In the Roman Catholic Church, people are canonized as saints upon proof of their holiness which usually includes miracles or magic. A saint is, by definition, not an ordinary believer. The creation of saints and the stories attached to them is called hagiography. This word, hagiography, comes from the Greek word agios, or hagios, which means the holy ones. 
And it is the standard word in the New Testament for God's people, ordinary Christians, you and me, us together. Saints are, by definition, ordinary believers. And ordinary believers are, by definition, the saints. It's the same thing. But probably the most dangerous belief attached to the pagan concept of sainthood, however, is the notion that one can call upon various saints to get us out of trouble. The invocation of saints. Pray to St. Valentine for relationship problems, to St. Christopher for good luck, to St. Joseph to get a good job um, in carpentry, or to St. Matthew for help with your tax return. Or to St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. With respect to these ideas, we need to discern between the invocation of saints and the intercession of saints. Now, the intercession of saints is the idea that dead Christians, now in the presence of Christ in heaven, are praying for us. That's that idea. There is possibly some biblical support for that notion, but I think rather the Bible assumes that the, that the saints in heaven are praying with the saints on earth rather than for the saints on earth. That's the idea of the intercession of the saints. The idea of the invocation of saints is the idea that I can pray to a dead Christian who is now in the presence of Christ and that he will talk to God with special authority. The Roman Catholic Church teaches and insists that these two things are the same thing. The saints are already interceding, so invocation is natural and good. Furthermore, there is, to be sure, plenty of evidence that this is what the early church fathers believed. Um, that you can as naturally ask a dead Christian to pray for you as I can ask a living Christian to pray for me, just as, in fact, I did during the announcements time. Just a natural thought for them. However, even if this practice was widespread in earlier times, it is a practice that is actually plainly repugnant to biblical Christianity. Uh, it, it, it's blasphemous with respect to Christ, his power, his fullness, his sufficiency, um, his ascension, his location, his love. He's all we need. Jesus wants to meet our every need, and there's no one who can do it like Jesus. If there is one, sorry, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Beyond that, it's occult and divination. There is no praying to Mary or Joseph or George or Matthew or anyone else. The birth of Christendom. The best thing or the worst thing that has ever happened to the church, or possibly both. We began today by hearing about the conversion of pagan, barbaric tribes of northern Europe, the escape of the gospel from the confines of the Roman Empire. Individual conversions led to mass conversions, the Christianization of Europe. That led us to consider how those pagans 
changed the nature of Christianity, mixing biblical and pagan ideas. And in particular, we have seen today the creation of the notion of the legendary Christian superhero or saint. Hopefully, that helps explain some of the things that we encounter day by day. It should also focus our attention on checking our frames of reference too. Obviously, when we read the Bible, we, we read it with the assumptions of our home culture, just as our ancestors in the faith have, have done so as well. But as we read and reread, as we pray, as we digest, mark, learn, meditate, we will see our frames of reference change. And the Lord be with you all.